Open your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. For those of you who, uh, we're going to cover a ton of scriptures this morning, and so I made it easy for you. I put a thing in the back that looks like this. If you want to just be able to follow through a ton of these scriptures as we kind of rattle them off, um, they're back there on the back table. Uh, two pages for you to be able to keep up easily without having to flip back and forth in your Bible. Um, so let's read together Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. This is the uh, fourth time we have covered these verses, and this will be the, uh, we will be focusing in on verses 15 through 17 this morning. So let's look at chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. Read it out loud. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you have been taught by us, either by our spoken word or our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us And gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. Comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. May God add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. Now, as we approach this text, there's an assumption that needs to be covered first. It's one that we've already covered a little bit in verse 13 and 14 as we went through this passage. But just for the sake of of ensuring ourselves, let's uh, look just for a moment at this concept. The Lord sanctifies you by His Spirit, and you work in the faith. Those are two different things, but they are the same. The Lord sanctifies you by His Spirit, and you work in the faith. Now, I bring this up to start with because there's a uh, there's two extremes as a pastor that I always end up having to push people back to the middle. I feel like a lot of what pastors do is go, well, we'll go this way a little bit. We'll go this way a little bit to keep people from theologically or pragmatically going off the deep end one way or the other. So one of the things that we're urged to do in the book of Hebrews is to stay in the middle. Stay focused on Christ and stay in the middle. Do not drift to the right or the left. Don't drift to meaningless genealogies and myths. And theology that doesn't impact the life. And don't, address, don't drift to legalism and tendencies that, that ruin the theology. So, so we do this. We spend a lot of our time as Christians with each other. Kind of going over here, over here, over here. And it's like herding cats, if I'm honest. right? If you've ever seen people try to herd a cat. Or even better, if you've ever seen somebody try to herd a bunch of toddlers. Even better. 
right? Because they're worse because they yell back, right? Cats at least get meow and then they move where you tell them to. But the toddler goes meow and then runs the opposite direction. So you try to herd things. And this is kind of what it feels like when we're in Christian community together. We're one giant amorphous blob headed towards Jesus. And that's an awful picture. But it works because that's kind of how this works. Everybody together, we're sheep. We're sheep all following the shepherd. And our shepherd sometimes walks in front and sometimes walks behind and sometimes walks in the middle. But we are always kind of this clump headed in a direction. And so we tend to go one way or the other. And one of the things that we see here is this balance between the sanctification of the spirit and the work of the hands. The sanctification of the Spirit and the work of the hands. And the best way that I have always thought or that I've learned to think about this is that the heart changes the hands. The hands follow suit with the heart. And God changes the heart and then we respond with the hands. The hands respond out of the overflow of the heart. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And just think of it as the hands move out of the overflow of the heart. It's the same concept we are Speaking or testifying or proclaiming what, the, what has happened in the heart. The Lord sanctifies you by His Spirit in verse 13. And you believe in the truth. Those are two things that are simultaneous and they both mean salvation. And they both happen. You believe in the truth and the Lord moves in your heart. So the two difficulties here to stay in between, the two extremes that people tend towards. One is that I don't do anything and I don't have to do anything, therefore I can live in license to do whatever I want because God does everything, therefore I don't have to or need to do anything. And while you're getting it right that you don't have to do something, the truth is that you do something because He has done something, because He has changed your heart. So because of the changing of your heart, you do something. Whereas the false theology, the false theological preposition is that because God has done everything, I don't do anything. Which is not true. It's just not practically true. God has done everything and therefore you respond. Your hands prove that out. You show me your faith by what you say. I show you my faith by what I do. James. The second one is because I do things, therefore all of this has been my doing. So the first one excludes your actions. The second one exalts your actions. The second falsehood. These are two falsehoods, by the way, just in case I didn't make that clear. The second falsehood is that your actions have determined your salvation. So you are the one who has done everything. God didn't do anything. You are the one who's done everything. And that plays out often when you dig into theology and somebody goes, well, I made the right decisions. They made the wrong decisions. And therefore, they are wicked and I am good. No. It's not how that works. You are only good when Christ has changed your heart and rescued you and empowered you to be so. Likewise, anyone else can be good if Christ moves in their heart. It's not your works that saved you. It's not your works that made you good. It's not your works that, that make you something. Therefore, you don't have to work in order to keep it. You don't have to work in order to attain it. 
You're not obtaining or guarding or keeping your faith by working. Rather, you are working out of the overflow of what God has done. So we need to keep this in good balance. That Christ has done the work in our hearts and therefore we work with our hands. You were saved, Ephesians chapter 2, you were saved for good works which He prepared beforehand or in advance for you to do. You are His workmanship. His masterpiece is the word there. You are His masterpiece. Doesn't that make you feel good? Just a side note, Ephesians chapter 2. If you want to feel the love of God and know and just have a little bit of confidence in your Christian walk, go read Ephesians chapter 2 and just memorize 1 through 10. Just memorize the whole thing. And you will feel empowered to walk in Christ. Anyway, you are His masterpiece and He has made works for you to do that He prepared beforehand. Both of the other views are logical fallacies. Just because God doesn't do, just because God does everything for your salvation does not necessitate inaction on your part. And likewise, just because you are doing something in response to your salvation does not mean that everything is dependent on your actions. To, to grasp this further, let's look at Philippians chapter 2, and this is not written for you in that list. But I'll read this one to you. Don't worry, that list comes up soon. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 13 says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So we see there this command. Because you are beloved and you have always obeyed in his presence, as much more in his absence, he says, One, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You ought to be laboring to prove your salvation. You ought to be laboring out of your salvation ought to come labor. And I don't mean prove as in make your salvation legit. I mean prove as in show that you have been saved. You are to labor in effort to work out your salvation to, and then here's the wild part. So you're supposed to work. Right, that's it's very plain there. Work out your salvation in fear and trembling. It's imperative. You're supposed to do it. You're supposed to do the work. And then he says, "For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure." I love that passage because that passage that has so much to do with you has nothing to do with you. So much to do with you. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You go, yes, I'll work. I'll labor. I'm going to tighten up. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to study my Bible five times a day. I'm going to be amazing. And then it says, and then it says immediately following for, or because of this, like, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God does the work. It is God's will, and it is His effort, and the end result is His pleasure. So you are to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, because God does all the work. Because God desires it. Because it is His good pleasure. And hear that. Hear that. You're working out your salvation is His good pleasure. It's His pleasure. You want to delight in God? You want to bring the heart of God joy? You know you can do that as a Christian. You couldn't before. 
When you're not a Christian, you can't bring God to light. You just frustrate. All your righteousness is as filthy rags before Christ. But afterwards, you can bring Him to light. Here's how. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Think deeply about theology. Work out practically the way that that works. And love other people. Serve others. Be kind and generous. Exhibit the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5. This is delighting the presence of God. How delightful this is. You are sometimes the means by which God accomplishes his work. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 10 through 13, it says this, We pray most earnestly, night and day, <laughs> that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. So Paul says we pray earnestly that we would see you face to face and supply what's lacking so that we have a part to play. Understand what he's saying. I want to see you face to face so that I can supply for you something that is lacking. I can supply for you need. I can, I can do this. We want to supply what is lacking in your faith. So Paul and Silas and Timothy work to bring supply to the Thessalonians. Now look at verses 11 and 13 here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. It says, Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we, as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. So we work to supply one another with needs that, that bolster the faith and, and we supply one another with what's lacking and yet at the same time, listen to the prayer. May Jesus direct our path. So we, we want to come see you face to face but we know that it's only by Jesus that it's going to happen. Let Jesus direct our path. And then, and then we want to supply what's lacking in our need. But Jesus is the one who changes the heart. So we, we pray that Jesus would make you abound in love. Even though we're supplying the need. Like we're going to supply what is lacking. We're lifting each other up and encouraging each other. Sometimes you are the means by which God accomplishes these things. Like making others abound in love. Sometimes you're the means. And sometimes it's just God's doing. We May Jesus direct our path. May he make you increase in love for one another and all. And may he establish your hearts blameless in holiness before God our Father. God is actively involved in the work. Perhaps a better way to think of it is that you are actively involved in God's work. Perhaps that's a better way to think of it. You are actively involved in God's work. God is always working. He's always moving and you get to be a part. You get to be a part of that. You get to be the agent sometimes. Sometimes you're the receiver. Sometimes you're the means by which things happen. Sometimes you're the catalyst. Sometimes you're the catalyst for what happens. But we work. God saves. We work. God sanctifies. We pursue holiness. These things work in conjunction together. You don't nullify one by saying the other. They don't get nullified by saying the other one. This is a basic theological assumption that we need to have before we read the prayers in the New Testament. So why do we pursue work? If God does all the work, God does all the work, and our work is merely response or participation, then why do we do all the work? First, 
We don't do the work to get salvation. God does salvation. Let's get that out of the way first. You did not earn salvation. You cannot earn salvation. You are not even desirous of earning salvation. Romans chapter 3 verses 1 through 10 makes this very clear. That you do not earn salvation. 10 through 19 hammers it home. You do not earn salvation because you do not want to earn salvation. Nobody does. No one is righteous. No, not one man seeks after God. No one seeks God. No one does what is good. Therefore, by the works of the law, no one will be justified before God, but God be rich in mercy because of the great love with which He had for you. Changed us. He rescued us. He saved us. He altered who we are. He made us His own. He calls us out of darkness into His marvelous light. Salvation is a work of God. God does that. So why do we pursue work? It is for delight that we pursue work. The Westminster Catechism is not wrong when it says the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's, he's not wrong. I would propose that that should say the chief end of Christians is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. The chief end of Christians is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. It is for delight that we work. 2 John verse 6 says, This is love, that we walk according to His commandments. And then in verse 5 it says that we love one another. This is love, that we walk in accordance with His commandments. So we obey because that's love. That's love. And is there any greater delight than love? No. Just in case you were thinking, yeah, there is. No, there's not. It's love. Love is the only greatest delight. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 5, it says, Whoever keeps, keeps Jesus' words in him, truly the love of God is perfected. We, have, we love or we work because we have been loved. So I want to get this out of the way first before we dive into 1 Thessalonians Chapter 2, verse 14 through, or 15 through 17 here. We want to get this out of the way. You work in the faith because he has loved and saved you. And because he has loved and saved you, out of the overflow of that love comes your work and delight in him. You don't work to earn your salvation. You can't. That's silly. It was given to you. It's a free gift over and over in the Bible. Free gift of God. The, you don't work to earn that. You don't work because you want to look awesome. That's not why you work. You don't work because you want to look awesome. You work because you love Jesus. Because Jesus has loved you. And our chief delight in Him is to work to become more and more what He has created us to be and be more like Him. So let's dive into our text now. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 15 through 17. So then, brothers, and we read this last week and studied, I just want to remind you of the two imperatives. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions you were taught by us, either by spoken word or by our letter. So he says first, you're supposed to stand firm and hold fast. And we talked at length about that last week. You can look it up on the podcast if you want to hear more about that. Verse 16. Now may our Lord... Jesus Christ himself. Look at that first. The the emphasis here is on him. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself. And if you remember uh, back in 
1 Thessalonians 3, verse 11, what we just read, it reads like this. Now may our God and Father himself. So in 1 Thessalonians 3, he's emphasizing the Father's work. Here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, he's emphasizing Jesus' work. Jesus himself. And it actually reads more like this. It says, uh, now may himself, our Lord Jesus Christ. He's, the emphasis is on him doing it. Him doing this thing. This is what Jesus does. Paul's prayer is asking for Jesus to walk within us and with us. Jesus, with his disciples, emphasizes two things. Remember at the Last Supper? Do you remember the Last Supper? Jesus is around the table with his disciples, and they are all very nervous. It's this great celebration feast, but they can see something is wrong with Jesus. Jesus is distressed. Jesus is distressed. And in his distress, in his distress, he turns to the disciples. And in his distress, he, he, he calls them to think deeply about things. And he says over and over several things. But the two most pervasive things he says to them in order to comfort them in their time of distress, there's two things. One, he says love. Love one another. I have loved you. The Father has loved you. The Spirit loves you. You love one another as I have loved you. I love you and go to prepare a place for you. Love, love, love. He says love is the, is the first emphasis in, those, in that Last Supper. The second emphasis in the Last Supper is His presence. I will leave the Spirit of God with you. My Spirit I will put within you. My Spirit will walk with you. I will send a helper, a paraclete, who will come and help you in your time of need, who will draw to remembrance everything you have learned from me. He says he's giving presence. This is not some distant, ethereal wish that Paul prays for here when he says he himself, our Lord Jesus himself, when he's emphasizing this. This is not a distant, ethereal prayer. This is a reality that Paul knows. He knows the presence of Jesus. He knows the presence of God. He knows. He's been in prison already. He has been running from the law already. He fled from, remember, in Thessalonians, in Thessalonica, he had to flee after three days. They were coming to get him. And he had to run away at night. He had to run in fear for his life. This is a man who knows the presence of of God, he knows what it's like to be utterly beat down, but to have Jesus with him, even in light of all of that. We can trust what Paul is saying in this passage. We can trust what Paul is saying in this passage. He says, He Himself, Jesus Christ our Lord, He's our Master. Paul is emphasizing this that He walks with us, not just as friends. Yes, he walks with us as friend. But in this passage, Paul is saying, Master, may our Master, our Lord, Jesus Christ. So our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Back at the beginning of 1 Thessalonians, we talked about the basic creed of Christianity. Jesus Christ, Savior and Lord. That is the basic creed of Christianity. He has to be Savior and Lord in order for you to be Christian. And that means something. But if a denomination or a people group or a person rejects one of those, they are rejecting the truth of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, Savior and Lord. So God, it says, may our Lord, 
Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comma, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work. So Jesus and God are going to comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work. That's the prayer. May God, may Jesus and God, one, we're Trinitarian, right? The Bible is Trinitarian. Paul is Trinitarian. Jesus, the Father, and the, and the Spirit are all one. They're three unique persons in one. How that works itself out, and you could, there are thousands of books that I could point you to. None of them give a great answer for that, except at the end to go, eh. So that's what we have. We have the Trinity in existence, three distinct persons in one essence. God is one. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, they are one. So we've got this, um, this, this beautiful picture of God and Jesus comforting our hearts and establishing them in every good work and deed. But let's look at what it says about God the Father. God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. So how has God loved us? How has God loved us? And that's where this packet comes in. If you've got them, let's just rattle through some of these. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever shall believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That should read more like this. Uh, This is how God loved the world. He gave his only son that whosoever should believe in him should have eternal life. That's a a more uh, fluid translation. It seems to make a little bit more sense in, in Greek. In other words, God loved the world by sending Jesus. In some sense... The revelation of Jesus Christ, the general revelation of Jesus Christ, not the saving revelation of Jesus Christ, but the general revelation of Jesus Christ, the proclamation of Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, that proclamation goes out to the whole world. Proclaimed to everyone. Everyone hears it. Not everyone receives it. Not everyone believes it. Not everyone, the Spirit does not move in every person. This is evident in Scripture. So we see the proclamation goes out to the whole world. And in this proclamation going out, in Jesus, the Son of God, coming to earth, dying on the cross, that sin may be forgiven and that resurrection would happen and that life would be given to people, that is God loving the world. In general, God loved the world in this way, that He gave His only Son, that whosoever would believe in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. So God loves the world through Jesus. Second, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 through 7. But God being rich in mercy, and this is the only time that this, is, this phrase is used in the Bible, because of the great love. That's the only time that that's used. Because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, By grace you have been saved and raised us up and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. God saved you by bringing life to you. This is how God loves you. 
He takes your heart of stone and he gives you a heart of flesh. He changes who you are, rescues you from sin, and changes, alters your spiritual DNA to match what he has made you to be. This is what God has done to love you. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is it did not know him. God loved you by adopting you into his family and calling you his child. God loved you by calling you his child. Here's another one. Romans chapter 8, verse 28 through 39. Romans chapter 8, verse 28 through 39 says this. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for the good of, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who was, ra who was raised at the right hand of God? And who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ our Lord. God gives us eternal life. He gives us, he gives us, he, he walks with us through our troubles. He walks with us through our trials. He, he takes us, he gives us love that is abounding in all things and cannot be defeated. He is with us at all times. God is faithful to walk through every trial of life with you. Every single struggle you have, he is literally walking through it with you. Feeling your pains and your aches while he leads you by the hand. He has a goal for you and a direction for you and you will obtain the glory that he has set out before you. Romans 8 establishes this beautifully for us that he is actively working and he is giving you his constant presence amidst this. That's how God loves us. He loves us that way. So he gives us eternal comfort. The word comfort is the word encouragement or help. It's the word paracleson, which if you're an astute listener of Scripture, you know that that means the Spirit. That's the same word used for the Spirit as a helper. I will send you my paraclete or my helper to be with you. He will bring to remembrance all that I have taught you. He will be with you. right? I will send you my helper. I will send you a helper from God. Paraclete or paracleson is this word comfort here. And he sends you eternal Comfort. This is what we see in John chapter 14, verses 15 through 31. 
there. If you read, this is where Jesus is comforting his disciples. And what does he say to them? He says, I'll give you a helper who will comfort you. In verse 18 there, it says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet for a little while, the world will see me no more. But you will see me because I live. You will also live on the day you will know that I am in the Father and the Father in me and I am you. Whoever has my commandments, who keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. So he's saying he's putting the Spirit within us. That's what he's going to do. He's going to give you his Spirit. And that Spirit is going to reside within you. This is the help, the paraclete. God gives you eternal paraclete. Eternal help. How has God loved you? He's given you eternal help. You see, in the beginning, in the garden, we were fractured. We sinned against God. Humanity sinned against God. And if you want to argue, well, I'm not Adam. I didn't eat the fruit. Right. But you sinned in some other way. If you don't believe me, just go through the Ten Commandments. It's not hard. There's only ten of them. Go through them and then ask yourself, have I ever broken any of them? The answer, by the way, before you do is yes. So just prepare yourself. You have broken them. And if you have broken them, then you've broken all of them, according to Jesus. If you break one part of the law, you have broken the law, period. And the punishment for breaking the law is death. You have shaken your fist at God simply because you wanted to. Simply because you wanted to. You didn't, we don't require help to sin. People, humanity, we're, we're great at that. All on our, all on our own. We don't, we don't require help to sin. That's something we do all on our own choosing. And yet God heals us in Jesus Christ and gives us eternal help. The helper in verse 26 of John 14, who will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that Jesus has taught you. He gives you the helper Back up in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, we see that the Spirit that He gives us also sanctifies us, changes our hearts and makes us more like Him, more holy. He sanctifies us. In Romans chapter 15, verse 4, He offers us help or comfort through the Word of God. He offers us help or comfort through the Word of God. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the help of Scripture, we might have hope. Same word, help of Scripture. We might have hope. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13, it says, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. Jesus, God, offers eternal comfort and then reminds you of that eternal comfort through His Word. Through His Word, He reminds you of eternal comfort. He gives you the Spirit, eternal help. He gives you the Spirit. Then He reminds you of that through the Word, which the Spirit brings to remembrance all the times that you need it. So the Spirit is actively engaging with the Word of God. If you are not in the Word of God, studying the Word of God, reading the Word of God, I want to encourage you, if you want to walk by the Spirit, if you want to delight in the Spirit, if you want to be one of those Christians that has a powerful walk with the Word, with the Lord, you need a powerful walk with the Word. If you want a powerful walk, if you want to be that type of person that loves Jesus and, and is unshakable, 
that's done through the word. Eternal comfort is given to you and reminded and, and reestablished in your heart through the word of God. It's why Paul tells Timothy that you're supposed to, in the church gathering, read the Bible out loud. That's why we do it. That's why we do it at the beginning and at the end of every service. You read the Bible out loud. It's commanded. You're supposed to devote yourself to this idea that you read the Scripture out loud in the congregation. Finally, God gives you uh, eternal comfort through discipline and chastisement. Through discipline and chastisement. I remember when I was young being punished by my parents for something I had done. And I distinctly remember a friend of mine who was from a broken home that the parents were uninvolved and didn't seem to care what he did and and he kind of got away with everything telling me how much he wished that that he was in my position i was i think i was 13 or 14 something like that and he, he said i wish that i was in your position i wish that i had what you had and i thought he meant all the the wealth that we had because we were a relatively wealthy family at that time and and had a big house and a pool and like all these things. And he was from a poor neighborhood. Um, and he was at my, I wish I had what you have. And I said, well, you, I mean, this stuff. And I, I tried to turn it to the gospel. I was 13. I was trying to turn everything to the gospel. My dad was a missionary. I was going to go. You know, so like, we're, I'm going to turn everything to the gospel. And so I was like, you know, all this stuff is fleeting. It's all, all this wealth and stuff is going to go away one day. And there's only one thing that really mattered. He interrupted me. And he was like, that's not what I'm talking about. He said, you can't go to this thing on Friday because you, you got in trouble. I don't remember what the punishment was, but it was something like that. Like, you can't go do this thing because you got punished. I wish I had that. And I thought, what are you talking about? <laughs> like, you get to go. What do you mean you wish you had? Like, you get to go to the party. And he looked at me and he said, my parents don't care if I'm there or not. And he said, they don't even know I'm at your house right now. I'll get home tonight. I'll make my own dinner and I'll go to bed and I'll get up and go to school tomorrow. You see, one of the ways we know that God offers us eternal comfort and eternal help and eternal love is that we suffer chastisement occasionally. We suffer discipline occasionally. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5 through 6 says it, put it puts it this way, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one whom he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. You are loved by God, and he disciplines you. This is beautiful comfort for us. This is the help that you need to get through trial. To remember that God has loved you, and he has done so by giving you eternal comfort. This is the help you need to get through trial. When, when the world smashes down around you and you've lost everything, the help you need to get through trial is to remember that God has loved you. God the Father has loved you. And it's not just through Jesus. It is through Jesus. That's His general, for God so loved the world. Like that's general. He has loved you through Jesus, but He has done more than simply throw you a rope. You remember that old analogy preachers used to use and then they argued about 
how the analogy should be used. They throw the rope, and, and God throws the rope, and you just got to reach out and grab it, right? It's, it's not in the Bible, so don't use that analogy. It's more than this. It's, he walks with you. He picks you up. He takes you from the miry pit, sets you on a rock. He lives with you. He weeps with you. He walks with you through trouble. He doesn't end the storm, but he's in the boat. You notice? The disciples thought they were going to die. And where is Jesus? He's in the boat. He's perfectly calm. He's taking a nap. But he's in the boat. And then when he wakes up, he's feeling the rocking of the waves. He's feeling everything. But they aren't alone. They're never alone. And you aren't either. He offers you eternal comfort and help this way. Second, he offers you good hope through grace. First, and uh, I didn't print out all of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 for you, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we have this beautiful picture of resurrection. So first, he offers you hope in the resurrection. Go read that at home sometime. It's beautiful, and it talks about you being resurrected to life. Did you know that you will actually be resurrected? That will really happen. There will be a resurrection and you get to be resurrected. You get a new body or a glorified body, resurrected body. Saying new is a little bit of a misnomer. It's, it's resurrected. For Somehow it's the same body, but it's also new. Um, I don't know how that works. Like People are going to recognize you, but they're not going to recognize you, but they're going to recognize you and you're going to bear some similar. It's fun. You get resurrection. So the first way he offers good hope is in resurrection that is to come. Second, he offers hope. And hope comes from divine power. All the hope comes from God. Let's just look at a couple of these. 2 Corinthians. Um, or actually, let's look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 4. I didn't get that one printed to me. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 4, it says this. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. God brings hope. If you want hope in life, it's found in God. In, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12, it says, uh, let's, Ephesians 2, verse 12, Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant's promise, having no hope and without God in the world, without Salvation in Jesus Christ, there is no hope. Hope comes from Jesus. You have hope because of who He is. And there's a litany of scriptures here. You've got hope in Titus chapter 1, verse 2. In hope of eternal life, which God who never lies promised before the ages began. Then again in Hebrews chapter 10. Look at chapter 10, verse 23. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful, all of these passages that you have listed for you, which I'll let you look at on your own, they have hope as a key thing that only comes from God. So God gives you eternal comfort or eternal help, and he gives you good hope. And it's not just passive like, oh, I hope this will happen. It's good hope or certain hope, hope that is going to happen. This is hope that you can trust in. It is hope that you can believe in. It is true and lasting hope that will never fail you. 
It is good hope. So what is the hope that is good from grace? What is the hope that is good from grace? We have, we have first, he's given you hope through grace. Great. So what is the hope that is good through grace? Let's look at Romans chapter 8, verse 18 through 25. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For creation was subjected in futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes and what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This hope first is a hope of glory. Did you see that? That there would be a revealing of the sons of God. You would be revealed. It's the same thing we saw in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 14, when it says that you would obtain the glory of Jesus Christ. We are... Our hope is that we would be one day fully revealed because of God. So we get to know who we are and whose we are because of God's movement in our hearts. We have hope of glory. We will obtain it. Second, we have hope of creation. A redemption of the whole world. You you ever feel bad that, that there are weird funguses that kill trees? I do occasionally. It's a little bit of a weird thing about me. Like things die and I feel bad about it. Right? Animals die. I, I feel bad about it. Like I just, oh, dead. That's sad. Right? I see roadkill and I feel bad. Most people are like, I wish I had caught that when it was fresh. Right? But this, I, I think this is, this is sad. I feel sad about it. You, you know, one day there's not going to be death. That creation will be freed from the bondage of death and the cycle of death. That creation will, itself will be restored and redeemed. The earth itself will be restored and redeemed. The oppressive heat will stop. The oppressive heat will stop. The debilitating cold will stop. Creation itself will experience redemption. That's what creation waits for, eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, for creation was subjected in futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. God subjected creation to futility in the hopes of redemption. A redemption that is certain and is going to happen. He subjected it in hope of redemption, freedom from bondage. Third, we have a hope of rebirth. You are going to be made new. You are already made new in Christ, but you are going to be made new. 
This is another way of saying you are being sanctified. Right? Sanctification is like driving. It starts, you, you started driving, you are driving, and you will be driving till you get to your destination. We call that justification. Sanctification is driving, glorification. Right? This all works in one long thing. You have hope of rebirth or completed sanctification, complete glory. And then you have a hope of not yet fully realized complete salvation. All your illnesses and sicknesses overcome. All your physical disparities overcome. All the things of death that surround us. All the temptations for sin. All those things that weigh us down thrown off and overcome in Jesus Christ. So you have eternal comfort or eternal help and you have good hope and they come from God the Father. They come from God the Father. God the Father has given you eternal comfort and good hope in Jesus Christ. And why? Because He loved you. Because He loved you. Is there a greater motivation for godly living. I don't think there is. If you want to live godly in this life, you you ought to press in deeply to learning the love of God for you. So in light of this, now may our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God our Father, jump to verse 17, comfort your heart or help your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Because God has given you eternal comfort, and because God has given you eternal good hope in, through grace, because God has given you eternal good hope through grace, and because Jesus is here as your Lord and Savior, because of these things, because you've been loved by God, and because Jesus is your Master and your Savior, because of this, May He now comfort your hearts or help your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Just like we read at the beginning, you work because of what God has done. And you ask the Lord to do the work you are committed to doing. You ask the Lord to do the work that you are committed to doing because he is the one who works and wills in you for His good pleasure. So the prayers that follow our needs and the prayers that follow our troubles are ones where we say we are laboring, but God does the work, so we are asking Him to do it. I want to illustrate this, last, this, this one more way for you. And that's a lot of us engage in what's called white-knuckle Christianity. You've heard me use this before, but imagine something goes wrong in life and you just grab hold. You just grab hold and you go, I'm just going to, I'm going to get through it on my own. I'm going to get through it. I'm just going to press through it. I'm going to do it on my own. And you go, I got to do more. I got to do more. I got to try harder. I have to do more. I have to try harder. I have to get this right. I have to get this right. It has to be right. I have to get it right. And we grab hold and we go, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. Lord, I'm going to do it. I'm sorry I let you down. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. 
This is white knuckle Christianity. It's going to hurt you every time. Every single time you do it, you're going to get frustrated. And fortunately for you, you're around a bunch of other believers. And I know this because you're here and I'm a part of you. And you're around a bunch of other believers who will go, hey, man, lighten up. You're around a bunch of other people who will be like, how can I help you? Like, you're, I see you're struggling. How can I, you need a reminder. You need me to call you every once in a while and check on you. What do you need? Like we all walk this life together. It's hard. We get it. Yeah. Everybody has struggles. Yours just look different than mine. We struggle together. So, but, but they do this. They white knuckle their Christian people, white knuckle Christianity, and they get so frustrated and they can't figure out why they don't overcome. And I think the secret to understanding the overcoming power that is inside you is to recognize that Jesus does the work. Jesus did the work. Jesus does the work. He will complete the work. You get to work. You are allowed to work. You get to work. You're permitted to work. You're permitted to do what is good. You're permitted to do righteousness. And this no longer becomes white-knuckle Christianity when you recognize that. It becomes something more like this. Open hands, ready to do what God has called you to do. Because you know it's not all on you to do it. And the mere fact that you know that empowers what you do. Paul here prays that God would establish your heart for every good work and word. Clearly, things that you're supposed to do. Work and word. But that God would establish your heart, that Jesus, your Master, would comfort your hearts or help your hearts and then establish them in every good work and word. You are empowered to do this. And if we would just grab a hold of the truth that we can now in Jesus Christ do that which was so hard before, that we can now do this, then we will find ourselves doing it, I believe. I believe we will find ourselves doing it. God would delight in His people as we do the work. Oh Lord, we thank You that You have saved us and loved us in Christ Jesus, that we have been rescued from sin and given eternal life. And Lord, that You have made us Yours. Lord, we pray that You would establish our hearts for every good work and word, that You would comfort our hearts, that You would make us more and more like Christ, and that we could rejoice more and more in the knowledge of who You are. We love you and trust you in all things. As we come to a time of communion together, I would urge you to examine yourself as the scripture calls us.